Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are my interviews with director James Gray and actors Jeremy Strong and Banks Rapetta for Armageddon Time. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. <laughs> I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. He'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. Mm-hmm. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. <laughs> How dare you? I'm menace to you. Well, you're not to associate with him again. What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean. Gentlemen. Hello. It's great seeing the two of you again Hi, after uh, after I saw you guys both at uh, Telluride this year. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Doing well. Doing really Where well. Are you? Uh, judging by the small apartment, Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> That's home for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, this movie's very much about home in a lot of ways. And James, uh, this being obviously your most personal uh, story to date, Curious to know two things uh, right off the bat here. Number one is uh, why now? And two, what parallels did you want to draw with your own story and upbringing in New York during this time to today? You know, it's sort of like saying, uh, uh, why did you marry your wife? Well, you could say, well, she's very pretty and has a lovely figure and, and all the superficial aspects, or she's very smart and all of that, the things that you perceive as more deep deep uh but the truth is you never really can put your finger on it there are plenty of brilliant women and plenty of pretty women and you just don't know why in some ways the story attracts you uh there's a kind of unconscious thing that flows through you and you can't uh you can't always explain it i will tell you Allie that gray I, is pretty incomparable my wife's amazing <laughs> that wasn't the point of what i was saying i know i know uh my whole drive has actually been to do personal work anyway. And to me, that's where the best result lies. When you take a very unvarnished view of yourself, really, and you're willing to put an un- unvarnished and uh, revealing and vulnerable look and putting it out there into the world, as uncomfortable as it is. And I had made two films back to back, which were physically very strenuous and also difficult for other reasons. And I just decided that I wanted to rediscover my love for the medium and to do something as direct and personal as I possibly could. I know that's not an answer to your question, really, but uh, it's the best I got. 
I think it's pretty good, actually. Now, you um, asked another part of the question, though, which is a very different thing. Sure. You asked about the relevance to today. Yes. And that has a very different meaning because I wrote the script in 2019. I didn't write it. You know, the movie doesn't get made in, you know, of course, of a, a week, a month, or even a year. Mm -hmm. I had written it weirdly before uh, uh, George Floyd and Trump's losing the election and all that stuff. So that just came because uh, I wanted to do what I saw as a, a real turning point in uh, American life. I had two gods when I grew up. I had Muhammad Ali and I had the Beatles. <laughs> they were, they for, for almost the same reason, actually, they both represented to me integrity. And that integrity was not some cheap thing that and you really had to fight for it and and that you didn't get paid more for it but that was okay and we don't think of the beatles by the way that way now because it's they stopped touring and people think that was great they could just sell a bunch of records but back in the day when they stopped touring that was a major risk yeah. and they disappeared for a while and went off to record sergeant peppers and everyone said what happened to them they had a serious integrity. And Muhammad Ali, of course, you know, that you know, skipped the best years of his life for a cause. So uh, those people, you know, John Lennon was murdered in 1980 and Muhammad Ali lost in humiliating fashion to Larry Holmes. And it really represented, I remember even realizing this as a kid, the end of an era, that the, that the 70s were kind of a hang hangover from the 60s culturally. And that with the death of Lenin and with Muhammad Ali's kind of mythic death, uh, I saw something of weirdly a kind of greater value to it. Now there sure. were many other things politically that happened, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, no, I totally understand like this idea of like cultural times changing. There's a shift in the winds, if you will, and attitudes and beliefs evolve along with it. Uh, but the phrase Armageddon uh, is a very extreme one, like battle between good and evil or the end of times or whatever people might imagine when they hear that term. Uh, where, where did that usage of the word uh, lie for you when you used it for the title of the movie? All the struggles that we face in life. You know, when you're a kid, when you're 12, life, you know, life is relative, obviously. And when you're 12, if somebody takes away your crayons, if your life is perfect, then that's a disaster. <laughs> So I saw disaster in both the small and the big. Mm -hmm. And I think something changed in American life in a very seriously uh, dark way. Plus, you had politicians constantly. And I mean, I mean, I used a clip of Reagan talking about it. Politicians were talking constantly about, you know, that Cold War scenario where mm -hmm. the world would be destroyed. And it was not a new fear. Obviously, it would be very difficult to say to someone in 1350 in Central Europe that, uh, you know, the, their life was great. The Black Plague was ready to kill them at any second. They had their own form of Armageddon. Yeah. So it's always been with us, this fear of the end of the end of, of days. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, but also, and this is what is so sort of deftly interwoven in, in this movie between the, the sort of personal and the historical, you know, Armageddon time is what, 1979, the clash? I want to say, uh, yeah, uh, I want to say, uh, was the flip side, oh God, it was the flip side to London, was it the London car? It may, it may have been 79. But it's, but it's, but it's also, of course, the way he, the Armageddon 
the 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 emotional Armageddon that is happening inside of this family, really in in all of the characters, in a very intimate way, the 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 emotional upheaval and sort of Armageddon in the, in this family and in his in this child's in the year of this child's life. Yeah, uh, Armageddon in this it, it it was Armageddon to his security, right? Yeah. He had one person who saw him for what he wanted to be and loved him unconditionally and felt and made him feel wanted. And he lost that person. And he had this friend who was uh, uh, very important to him, whom he lost. And these things formed his own personal catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not a, a coming of age, really, nor is it like, oh, the kid learned his lesson. I mean, what lesson did, did the kid learn? Mm -hmm. There is no lesson to be learned. The only I, lesson I, to learn is that there is no answer and that life is a an unending series of questions, problems, a moral struggle. It feels more true to life in that regard. I, I love that your movie exemplifies that because it does avoid, I think, a lot of uh, cliche trappings of this type of storytelling that we tend to see often. So I commend you for that. You, you mentioned before that there's always been like a personal element to your work before. And I can't help but notice um, definitely references uh, to your relationship with your father in numerous of your other films. Um, I, I, you know, I think even just let, to your last one with Ad Astra, I'm sure there had to be a personal element to it in that. So can you uh, talk to me about working with Jeremy and Jeremy in turn, uh, the responsibility of portraying this man's uh, father? And, you know, for you uh, as an actor, had you ever felt that kind of responsibility to a director before? You want to go first or do I have to go first? I can go. You drink your tea. <laughs> uh, I'll uh, drink my tea anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> By the way, I just want to say one thing. Do you know that whole thing about like, why'd you marry your wife? That thing? Do yeah. you know where that's from? Are you a filmmaker? Uh, why'd you marry your wife? You know, the question is, you know, ask why do you follow a story? Well, why'd you marry your wife? She's a, there are lots of women who are smart, lots of women. Stanley Kubrick. He said that. <laughs> Anyway, go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> uh, I just thought you might want to know that as a no. I, I just like I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to place it. It was like in an interview. He said that, or yeah, yeah. Okay, that's why All I right. wanted to give credit where credit is due. It's hey. a funny. It's a funny line, and that's why we love you, James. <laughs> I can't claim ownership. Go ahead. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Well, I mean, like you said, I think the the relationship between father and son is a is a real thread through james's body of work mm -hmm. and 
and I and and that's a body of work that I really have revered for a long time. So so yes, I felt a colossal sense of responsibility and the weight of that coming into this. Um, I think in a different way. I mean, I I have I have worked on things that are based on historical people or based on people who are alive. And I always feel a, a, a great sense of responsibility to, to the veracity of those characters and, and, a, and, and, a, and an awareness of that. Mm-hmm. This was compounded, I think, because, because of how personal it is and because, uh, because I'm working in a sense with the, with the source uh, itself. And, and I didn't truly didn't know how from when I read it, and the character is described as a as a Jewish Stanley Kowalski with an engineering degree, and seeing what was on the page and how vividly it, it, it's it's rendered on the page, I didn't know how on earth to to get from me what I am at baseline mm-hmm. to to making that credible and yeah. and earning the right to walk onto that set and 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 I knew there was a huge distance to travel uh, and and. But I didn't know, you know, uh, I didn't know how to do that. Um, and then you just throw yourself at it. I think with with a, with a, with a with a vengeance. Um, and in this case, that was about really sort of trying to pry as as much as I could from James. And then, you know, I remember I got on a plane. I was in Copenhagen, and I just got on a plane and went to seek him out with his family. We went to. We went to Queens. We went to the house he grew up in. We went to the, we went to the panorama at the Queens Museum that he used to go to with his grandpa, and, you know, anything at my disposal to try and understand viscerally who this man was, what was the patois of his voice, what 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 did he, what did he listen to, what did he like what did he what were his influences you know anecdotally everything yeah i got james to put a tape recorder in front of him and ask him the questions of the proust questionnaire which really gave me a lot really um but that 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 in a way that gives you a lot to work with and then you have to match it with your own instincts and imagination and uh but this certainly felt like I, I felt very far out on a limb characterizationally and not knowing, you know, James is a James is James's work. I remember on the first day, you know, you have to be less than life, less than life. Yeah. Same time. Stella Adler once said, sometimes characters are people are characters can be as large as life. Mm-hmm. And there's something that I've always loved in certain actors, which is a kind of theatrical courage, which is a term that Olivier used in his autobiography, there's something as large as life about Irving. Uh, uh, Eat the meat is a is a line that's written in the text. So as an actor, you think, how can I possibly create a character who can say that those words mm-hmm. and have those words feel completely of of the cloth of this person? So it was a real challenge and it felt the pressure to 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 get it right and have it be have it feel real to james and have james believe 
and what he was witnessing was probably the greatest challenge I've ever had. It was it was a real high dive. Well, I paid James a compliment before, and I'll just say for you, Jeremy, uh, I saw aspects of my father in your performance, and that meant a great deal to me, uh, seeing somebody who is literally just trying to do the best that he can, yeah. while also having this uh, wall that's up of yeah. telling his family everything is secure, I've got things under control, when you know deep down that he is also struggling like the rest of like the rest of us. So you. You. No, that really resonated with me a lot, and I appreciate that. And, and the pressures that he's feeling. I mean, I remember reading in an interview with James this idea that he would get off the subway and maybe walk around for a long time before coming home. Mm -hmm. And that really, honestly, that killed me because I, I think I recognize elements in my own family. I think I, we can all, I think, identify with that struggle to, to, to stay afloat, to hold it together, uh, to, to, to sort of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. talking. <laughs> Um, I want to just end with a question for both of you here. Um, tell me what it was like working with Anne Hathaway and Anthony Hopkins. You want me to go first? Or you? I mean, uh, what sort of hyperbolic expression can I use? I mean, it was the, the thing about I remember, I remember reading something that Kafka said mm -hmm. that, that the hardest tightrope to walk is the one lying flat on the ground. And I think Tony Hopkins has reached this point of mastery in his work that he is just so completely grounded and present and in his body and in the moment and is an illuminated being in a, in a lot of ways. So so there's no there's no ego, there's no acting. You don't see the stitching and it's a masterclass for Annie and I. And Annie is a friend of mine, and, and we've worked together before, and I love her and respect yeah. her greatly. She's an audacious actor. She's a, she's a brave actor and, and a committed actor. And so I, I, I love that. And we all just wanted to serve James. And so we, we were, I think, together kind of swinging for the fences. You all came across as such an authentic family unit. Uh, together as an ensemble and uh, I think that speaks to everything that you're talking to here for sure well that speaks Matt though to their excellence because mm -hmm. because of COVID did not have what I would have loved which is to basically get them together for a month and I would have cooked a lot of meals <laughs> a lot of discussions around the table mm -hmm. and you can't really do that now yeah and that sucks and so all of the work that gets put into what they'll say is, you know, the sort of the whole iceberg, and then you show only the tip. We couldn't really do the whole iceberg before the movie started. We had to kind of work and work and see if we could discover it on the day, because the way that you make films now, both because of the money involved and the scheduling involved and all of that, but also because of COVID, makes that kind of old deep dive impossible but but you know in a in a certain way i think the work of preparing for film as opposed to the theater is you have to create that iceberg yourself and i think we all were able to do that given the given the material we had from james and then james and not a lot of filmmakers i think would be able to do this 
he had, he, he, he entrusted us. He, he had so much trust, I think, in us mm-hmm. that he said at a certain point before we started, it's yours now. And it's not ours. I mean, it is, it is his, if anything is his, this is his, but he allowed us to take ownership of it uh, and interpret it in our own ways and gave us the freedom to do that while, while also guiding us through it. Yeah. yeah, but it is. I, I wasn't just saying that it's yours and it is yours because it's mine. Yes, but is it the analogy would be this, right? If you're a conductor and you go on there and you you you, you go to the orchestra and you, it's not the or the conductor's not playing every instrument in the orchestra. The conductor is <laughs> reliant entirely on the excellence of the players. Now, you know, Carlos Kleiber can make all the faces he wants. It doesn't really matter. He's not going to get a great performance out of inept players. Mm-hmm. The job of the conductor is to get the best out of great players and to get out of the way. You know, do no harm, they say, the Hippocratic Oath, right? It's like just, and my attitude is, you know, if I have great actors playing these parts, and, you know, in some ways I thought it was important that great actors of stature play these parts because the kid would see them as monumentally important. Yeah. And so I needed actors who felt quote unquote important that had a myth already Mm -hmm. because that's the way the kid sees them you 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 don't see your parents as you know nothings or insignificant you see them as your gods absolutely they they need to be people for our language purposes they needed to be people of repute at least i thought and i'm lucky enough to be in a position where i could get great actors con them into working with me and, uh, you know, Tony and, and Annie, I mean, it's all the same language, you know, they're fantastic actors, and they commit entirely to the part, all of a sudden, the wall breaks down, and you love what you see, and they stop pretending, you don't want pretending, you want being. Yeah. And that's what they gave to me. Well, well, James, it was yours, then it was the actors, now it belongs to the audience. So. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, once again, pleasure seeing both of you. Jeremy, can't wait for season four. Thanks, and uh, James, can't wait for the next one. Thank Thanks, you, Matthew. Take care, guys. Bye. My parents are sending me to my brother's school. That's heavy. In this institution, you can be anything you want to be. It won't be because of a handout. It'll be because you earned your way there. Someone's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. Who's that? Somebody from my old school. Did they ever come to your house? What do you do when that happens? Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? My mother, you know, when we came over here, we didn't have much. Why'd she come here? Because they wanted to kill her, that's why. They were soldiers, and sometimes they go out looking for Jews. They hated us then, and they still hate us. So we got in the boat and we came over here to America, the land of dreams. You just wanted to be like you. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. Life is unfair. Be thankful when you get a leg up. You make the most of your break and do not look back. All my hopes are with you and your brother for my whole life. Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those kids, you're gonna say something. You're gonna be a match, okay?
firm handshake. Okay, give me a hug. Thanks, Rapetta. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Next Best Picture podcast to talk about your work on James Gray's Armageddon Time. First of all, how are you now that the film has been released in theaters and has had this film festival run over these last couple of months since its world premiere at Cannes? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm doing great. Well, when I first heard of the premiere in Cannes, I, I had this thought in my head that there would be somewhat of a premiere. Mm-hmm. And that would happen. And then it would just be, oh, next project, move on. And that's funny. I'm glad that I got to realize that after Can, I get to do all these new, great, and more things like the premiere in LA, New York, SCAD, uh, all these great places. It keeps going. Yeah. And, and like, have you ever been a part of anything like this before? All this constant traveling, the press tour, or is this like all new for you? This is pretty new. Mm hmm. Well, uh, I'm glad that you're working with such talented and wonderful people uh, throughout this whole process. Yeah, it's I mean, it's great. You know, I'm it's so nice to be surrounded by people who really know what they're doing and are just happy to be on set and make you feel comfortable when you're acting around them. That's great. Absolutely. So how did this all come to be? Uh, I know with casting uh, children in movies, it's usually a process of seeing hundreds of kids. Uh, How did it work for you? What was your initial journey like with getting your foot in the door? Well, I played a young Tom Holland in the movie The Devil All the Time. The casting director on that movie was Douglas Apel, who happens to be the same casting director in Armageddon Time. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that he had he heard some feedback from that movie and saw it. And, you know, it's I have a connection there. And then besides that, I did a Zoom with James and we got to play around with the script and I really got to know him. We just got to feel for the scenes. So when you're reading the script, it takes place, obviously, before you were born. Hell, even before I was born. Uh, So what is like research like for you? Do you do independent research or is it all just talking with James? Well, one thing for sure is before we started filming, both Jalen and I listened to the song Rapper's Delight over 200 times. I'm I'm definitely going to say, yeah, we listened to it a lot. But uh, besides that, you know, I got to talk with James and he gave me some basic information like what family dinners were like, what it was like to have a normal day of Paul Graff. But besides that, just walking on set was my preparations. Like, you know, um, I mean, yeah, just walking on set was my preparation. Sure. Yeah. Just feeling like lived in, in the environment, like you said, working with people that yeah. made you feel comfortable. Is there right. anyone on the set that could make you uh break character and laugh uh who was like the funniest person on set oh my goodness the funniest (laughs) person on set um let's see this is a good one let me think about this one hold on sure funniest person on set well i spent i spent a lot of time with Jalen, and we're both younger than a lot of the actors so and it's just, we were both younger than a lot of the actors and it was a serious script. So, I mean, there's a lot of times when we got tired because yeah. they would do late shoots and we would just end up getting tired. And that's kind of when the giggles come in and it's kind of gives a sense for everybody like, okay, these kids are done because we'll just start laughing about nothing. Just like one person will start laughing and then it's it's just great you know it's contagious at that point yeah yeah Yeah, i i I know from working like long hours at jobs in the past like when you hit like 12 hours or something insane you just your mind just starts getting delirious and you just start laughing at everything yeah you Uh, said it 
I hear you on that. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, just the process of not, you know, you, you talk about the casting here. You talk about working with the actors on set. So what are the conversations with James like? Uh, what did he want you to get uh, the most sense of? Was it the people? Was it the place? Was it just your character? Like, how did he frame all this to you? Because ultimately, he's asking you to play him. Well, all of it. I think for the dinner scenes, a lot of the time that I spent with the family, Mm-hmm. A lot of that was improv and I spent, oh. you know, I, I spent a lot of time getting used to that by just being there and doing it. And, um, but something that he really made clear is he wanted me to really get a feel for the freedom of 1980s. Like for example, the scenes with me and Jalen, he wanted, or Jalen and I, he wanted to make sure that we were having the most fun as kids in the 1980s in that arcade or at sure. that subway or for any of our scenes he wanted us to feel that freedom if you know what i mean yeah totally and you know paul is hoping to become an artist someday That's correct. Uh, are any of those drawings in the movie done by you or are they done by anybody else they were done by somebody else i wish they were done by me but uh <laughs> Paul Graf would have been impressed. Any artistic uh, pursuits outside of acting? Like, do, are you a musician or anything like that? Or Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. I have some small hobbies. I took two tours in Venice Beach when I was younger mm-hmm. and I sold my art. I had a had this thing, it was called Skinabs, and it was just a, a little village of all my little monsters. And I sold in Venice Beach twice. I love and, that. And um sold out. And then besides that, I play the guitar every now and then just as a hobby. That's cool. What do you like to play? Just learning songs, chords, riffs, anything, anything that I can just pick up and do. Sure, sure. I know that Paul has a desire to want to like go down to uh, Florida in the movie. Is there any place like right now that you would like to go? Because I mean, like I said earlier, you've gone to a lot of places on this press store. But is there anywhere right now at this very moment that you would want to go to just to get away for a bit? Switzerland. Ooh, why Switzerland. I've seen a lot of pictures and heard a lot of stories about how beautiful it is. And I've just seen how green the grass is and how pretty the waterfalls are. And it just seems like a paradise to me. (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Can you also tell me just a little bit about um, in this movie, you visit a lot of places in New York, right? And you shot on location for a lot of it. Can you tell me what it was like just working those days where you weren't actually on set, but on location? I, I imagine it was shot on location in New York, a lot of these scenes, and they aren't like stand-ins, right? Like you didn't shoot in a different state and say, oh, right, we're going right. to make this look like New York. Yeah, exactly. So can you just tell me like what that was like? Well, um, you know, 
a lot of the scenes where we're in Central Park and the Guggenheim, we're actually at those places. And it's funny, something that's so great about New York is mm -hmm. that they're able to make these places in 2022 look like 1980, which is pretty crazy. I think that's right. impressive. Shout out to Happy Massey, a production designer. But um, I mean, I felt the scenes when we weren't on a set, they did feel a little bit more special because you were actually there running in Central Park or actually there in the Guggenheim, which, you know, made it a little bit better for acting and just getting a feel for 1980. Right, exactly. And I, I love that scene that you have. Well, actually, I like every scene that you have with uh, Anthony Hopkins in this movie, but particularly, yes. Yes. yeah, the scene at the park uh, between the two of you. Oh, Can yeah. You, what is it like just being in a scene with him? Because, you know, for myself and so many others, you know, and I know you know this too, he's considered a legend. He's had this very, very long career. Uh, what is your impression of him having worked with him? It's unimaginable. I mean, it's so crazy that I got to work with this great artist, the Anthony Hopkins. But um, I mean, it was great. He just walked on set and he had so much authority and wisdom. He told James what to do. And he was just... He was great. And something that made the chemistry so real is that he like made me feel comfortable. It was just so nice working with him. Yeah, he seems like such, just such a joy to be around. And also too, like uh, working with Jeremy Strong and Hathaway, in addition to Anthony, uh, you know, you have a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom there between all three of them. What was like some of the best advice that you received from e any of them? Couple things. Okay, Anthony Hopkins told me make sure to speak clearly. And I think, yeah, it, matter, it matters if you're heard. Just make sure to speak clearly. That was nice of him. And this wasn't a piece of advice, but this is a question that I'm still, still thinking about is I took a walk with Anne Hathaway and in Central Park, and she asked me, towards the end of our walk, she asked me, what kind of acting style do you have? And I thought about that one and I just, I kept thinking about that. What kind of acting style are you? And at the time I was kind of embarrassed of myself because when she asked it, I, I ended up, well, I ended up going like, uh, I, uh, I don't know, <laughs> which was embarrassing, but I think that's such a great question. It's not necessarily a piece of advice, mm -hmm. but like, what kind of interviewer are you? Hopefully an easygoing one. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm glad you know that. I mean, Think about that one. I just, I think that's so great that somebody can ask you that. I love that question. Yeah, absolutely. The movie is dealing with some very, very heavy themes that I know, you know, when I was your age, the, the, like these are things I wouldn't even think about necessarily. So I'm just curious to know, like in terms of understanding the screenplay, understanding what Paul is going through, like in these moments, I imagine James had to break it down for you both on a personal level for Paul and what the character is experiencing because he is confused in some cases too but also I imagine you had to understand on that broad level uh, some of the societal aspects of the story the racial aspects of the story and can you just tell me like what that was all like just absorbing that information and talking with James yeah you're right the movie focuses on some very touchy subjects but I think in Paul Graff's head in the movie that really wasn't what he was thinking about i think right. he had different problems like staying where he wanted to at his old school and being friends with johnny um but i think that's that's a different part of the movie yeah 
totally hear you on that. Absolutely. Um, and then also, what would you say was probably like the most memorable day on set? What was a day that uh, sticks out in your mind? Uh, was it the dinner table scene or something else? Or Good question. Really good question. Um, there's a lot of memorable things. I really, hmm. <laughs> the day with Anthony Hopkins when we filmed in the park, that felt really special because in the script, there's a lot of things that happen that Paul doesn't know. But after reading it, I already knew. And yeah. um, like one thing is the grandpa, have you seen the movie yet? Twice. Okay, great, great. So in the movie, he says, I'm going off for a while. I just need to check out some things. Paul does not know that um, he, the grandpa is having uh, knee cancer. And um, there's just a lot of things that Banks is thinking about, but I have to stay focused as Paul. And a lot of things that Paul should be confused about. Like, why does he give him a handshake instead of a hug first? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that, that one stuck out. Absolutely. And as we said before, like working with Anthony Hopkins, I'm sure right. anytime you're around him, it's a memorable day on set. So Right, right, right. Now that this movie is in the can and, you know, world premiere can now in the can uh, out in the world for people to see in theaters, uh, what is next for you? Um, have you uh, had any offers for anything else coming up or? I've done some auditions, but whatever life brings me, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping I do a comedy next, but nice. I have nothing really planned right now. And are you okay with that? Like, or do you like want to like take it easy? Like, what what, what do you want ultimately? No, I, I want to keep acting. I definitely want to keep acting. Sure. And uh, I hope we do get to see you continue uh, with acting as well, because I really enjoyed your work in this movie. I saw a lot of my my young self and you is and I'm sure many others did as well, because what you're going through is very or your character is going through is very universal in terms of you know, the interactions with teachers, with other students, with family, and just growing up in general in, in New York, uh, specifically. That's so, great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Wishing you all the best. And thank you so much for the time here. I really appreciate it. Of course. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too, man. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interviews with the director and writer for Armageddon Time, James Gray and two of its stars, Jeremy Strong and Banks Rapetta, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Armageddon Time is currently playing in theaters from Focus Features and is up for your consideration for this year's Academy Awards. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.